Welcome to my study on understanding the book of Acts. These messages were given live during my regular Sunday morning services. Now, while each of these messages are able to help you as a standalone message, I recommend listening from the beginning because they do build on one another. Now, I pray these help you in your journey of understanding God's word. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Let's get to the message. About how do you reach people in a world that's like the one that we're living in right now? It's, it's, it's kind of crazy sometimes. What shows up in the news? What shows up in the school system? What shows up in our government? And you think, how am I supposed to reach these people for God? You know, one of the most frustrating things that I know of um, that we as Christians are expected to do is to tell people about the gospel message in the world that we live in. It's a very frustrating thing because there's no cut and dry way to do it. There's no single method to do it. There's no, you know, some people say, you know, if I can just get someone to read the five spiritual laws by Billy Graham, then they'll, then they'll get saved. And then they read it and go, this was stupid. And they throw it away and you're thinking, oh no, what they really need is a chick track of, if you don't know what those are, that means you're not old. Um, so some of, some of you are thinking, I still have some of those at home. You know, you even remember the names of the ones that were good, right? The letter, you know, like the, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's fine. Go home, look it up. They're great. Um, but we try all these things, or worse, here's the worst thing you can do to, in, in when it comes to trying to reach someone for the gospel. When you're at a restaurant, and you sit down, and instead of leaving the waitress a tip, y'all, some of you already know where I'm going with this, you leave them a track that looks like a $1,000 bill or a $20 bill or something like that, and then you write on the receipt, you know, silver and gold, have I none? Yes, you do. You just paid for dinner. You cheapskate, don't have the dessert, and leave the tip, leave the tip. Now here's an idea, leave a big tip and the track, you know? Spent 20, I spent a lot of years in the restaurant industry, and uh, I've had more servers come to me <laughs> mad as a hornet's nest because they got one of them silly things after giving someone really great service, and like, wow, that was really great, I'm totally reading this, like, ugh. Then usually I gave them some money out of my own pocket just and apologize. I'm really sorry. Uh, but it's, it's frustrating because there's no simple... If there was just a one, two, three, four, say this, and everyone gets saved, it would be so awesome. But that's not the world that we live in. We live in a world full of people who with different, different backgrounds and different histories and different, different views and different likes and different, different uh, dislikes. And we've got to figure out how to reach them to the best way that we can. We're supposed to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And now, while the methods to do this, how you reach someone, how you actually get to them varies. There's a whole lot of them. There's a whole lot of ways to try to reach people. There are really only two types of people in the world that we live in. I know that sounds overly uh, simplified because it is. But when it comes to the gospel message, there are really only two types of people. There's an Acts chapter 17 type of person. And then there's an Acts chapter 2 type of person, and I'm going to talk about both of these two groups, and I'll explain to you what those, what those mean. Um, and we might even spend a couple of minutes looking at some common mistakes that we make, especially in the modern charismatic church. Now, I want to preface that by reminding you, we are a charismatic church, okay? We're not, we're not fundamentalists. We're not totally left-wing Pentecostal either. Uh, I like to think of us as fundismatic. Because it works out really well. Charismental sounds like we need medication. <laughs> so I'm just going to go with fund is mental. 
We believe in everything the Holy Spirit says, but at the same time, the Bible is our single most authority. So I'm going to start with uh, the first group here. And the first group is an Acts chapter 17 type of person. And these are people who don't know. That sounds really oversimplified, doesn't it? It's people who don't know. How many of you know people who have no experience with the church? They have no experience with the Bible. They don't know Christianese. So when you say things like, well, you know, all have sinned and fallen short, they have no idea what you're talking about. Those are good one-liners to them. They don't have the history to understand how to interpret your Christian language. Those are people who don't know. So this first section in Acts chapter 17 is Paul talking to people who don't know. And it starts like this. It says, now while Paul waited for them in Athens, Paul had been on a missionary trip. He was just, um, we'll say, spirited away from one group of people because they didn't like him very much. So they, he went to Athens and he was waiting for the rest of his group to catch up to him. So while he was there, he was alone. Now, remember, Paul is described as someone who was short, also short-tempered, and rather aggressive in his ministry style. You don't leave someone like that unsupervised in a pagan city. Because what happens is exactly what happened. Paul got bored and decided to go to work, whether anybody else was there or not. And this is actually what I like about him. It says, now Paul waited for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Can you imagine that? This city has idols. I'm going to have to save them all. That's Paul. It says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For uh, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else uh, but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription on it. To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I will proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord and heaven and earth of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might uh, uh, grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So the people here have no idea what Judaism is. They don't know what Christianity is. They don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about the history. All they want in in Athens, it was a place of knowledge. These people were very arrogant about who they were. They were very proud of what they would know. They always wanted to have a little bit more information than you did. Anyone ever met anyone like that? Like when you tell them something, they've got to add something to it to make sure you know they're smarter than you are. Right? Anyone ever been that person? Just nod. Okay, just nod. 
Because the person next to you is nodding, going like this. Okay? All right? We all do it. But they made a life out of it. So they hear these things, and they're thinking, this guy knows of a God we don't know of. We need to know what this is. So Paul starts preaching to them, and it's very, very interesting what Paul does. Paul goes right back to the scriptures. Paul says, God, who made everything, Paul goes all the way back to Genesis, who set the earth's boundaries, put everything in place. He's not someone that's worshipped in temples. He's not worshipped with men's hands. He's worshipped whether you want to worship him or not. He's the God you don't know anything about. He's He's the unknown God. He's the God above all gods. He is the king above all kings. He is everything you will ever need in every area of life for the rest of your life. You should probably think about it. And he spent days going back and forth with them. They were asking him questions. He was giving them answers. And scripture lets us know where he stayed, where he sat in the midst of that conversation. And he sat in the strength and the authority of scripture. That's where he stayed. He didn't need to step up and try to become some sort of a magician. He just gave them the truth of God's word. Now, here's the cool thing. Paul was able to do this because he, because he had something that the people he was ministering to didn't have but needed. See, Paul was able to reach them with the word of God because he had the word of God embedded in his heart. He had an understanding of the scriptures like no other. Paul was one of the most educated in the scriptures of his time. Scripture bears that out on a number of occasions. He wasn't someone, please hear this, who simply had a bunch of Bibles Right? You know, you, you bring the Bible to church and, and the pastor says, open to that page and your Bible's st- pages are still stuck together because you've never actually broken that little gold leaf seal on the outside pages. <laughs> you've had it for nine years, but it's fine. <laughs> Paul had it inside of him. Paul had the Bible so well embedded in his soul and his spirit and his mind that when someone asked him a question, please explain to me this, he gave them an answer from God's word. Now I want you to imagine Paul standing in front of all of these wise philosophers and they say, tell me about your God. Tell me about the morality of your God. And Paul looks at them straight in the eyes and he says, you should go talk to my pastor. You know, I have a book you should read. He he didn't do that, did he? Do you want to know why Paul was the most successful New Testament missionary of all of them? Because he had answers to questions. He had answers to questions, and his answers pointed back to the word of God. He wasn't offering his opinion. Well, what do you think about this subject? Well, in my opinion, that's awesome. Can you imagine standing before God at the judgment seat and you're there and you're giving an account for your life and God says, please tell me about this moral failure in your life. And you say, Lord, I talked to someone and they shared with me their opinion and they said this was fine. And God said, oh, well, you talked to so-and-so. Had I known, you know what? I'm changing my position now. on this particular issue because that person was on your side. Man, I wish I had known this from the beginning of creation. He doesn't give a rip what our opinion is. 
It's an old saying. You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. You want to make God really laugh? Tell him your religious views. You see, God is not here to learn from us. God is not here to be corrected by us. God is not here to, bring, to, to put himself in line with our thinking or our, societal's, uh, our society's evolutionary thoughts of what morality is and what kindness is and what marriage is and what gender is. He doesn't care at all. He might be sorry that he hurt your feelings, but he's more sorry that you took that position that was against him to begin with. Because God says that I am the Lord. I don't change. Now, Paul had another skill that tends to get lost in the modern church today. Paul knew his audience. Paul knew who he was speaking to. Public relations is not, a, not something that a lot of us really enjoy, right? It's not something a lot of people are going to put their time into, but the people who understand public relations understand one thing above everything. If you don't know who you're reaching, you won't reach them. Now, I want you to imagine that I'm standing up on a platform and I give the most amazing gospel proclamation that has ever been given. Billy Graham weeps. He wished he would have given something that good. And I'm giving it, I am just giving everything I can to a group of people who only understand Russian. And I give an altar call, no one comes forward. You know why they didn't come forward? Because they didn't understand a word that I said. They're probably sitting down thinking, he's really excited. It makes no difference. How moving an argument I bring if I don't bring it in a manner that is understandable by those I'm trying to reach. Paul spent time going through the city, looking at all of their artifacts, looking at their entire religious view, asking one simple question. What do I need to do to break through this wall to get to them? What is it that, I, what, where is my open door? Because God always says there's a way, right? If he sends you, there's a way. It's our job to look for it. You don't walk into a city when someone comes in and they don't know the Lord, they don't have a blinking red arrow above their head that tells you exactly what to say in order to get them to listen. We're supposed to do our part as well. Paul did his part and he found an open door. Aha. There's a God they don't know about, but they're willing to worship him. Found it. That's my way in. And it worked. It worked beautifully. Now, when I first started to understand this, I wished that I had understood this earlier, early on in my ministry because I would get very, very frustrated. I would be working with a youth ministry. We did this for, I think, five or six years, Samantha and I. And we would go around, and I would give what I thought was an absolutely amazing message. We'd give an invitation. No one would come forward. And then there are times that I would give an absolutely horrible message, and I just wanted to get out of the room. So I would give an, I'd give an invitation just to get it over with. Like half the church would come forward, like weeping and gnashing of teeth in front of the stage. Usually I'm thinking, God, you, you have a really demented sense of humor. 
I don't, I don't know what is going on this. And it all comes down to something that was said resonated with the people that were there. It had nothing to do with my, with my skill with the message. It had everything to do with, the, with the, the condition of the heart and the condition of the mind of the person hearing the message. So when people say, Pastor, I'd share the gospel more, I'd try to witness more, but I'm not as good at it as you are. So? It's got nothing to do with your skill level. It has everything to do with the willingness in your heart to be used to bring the gospel to other people. Use what you have, find out what you're missing, and then get the pieces that you need to work on and work on those. That's how we do this. It's like any other job that we have. When you get into a job, there are skills that you don't have. There's understanding that you don't have. The longer you're there, the more you do it, the better you get. Ministry is no different. Now, the second group of people is the Acts chapter 2 type of people, and I call these those who know. Those who know. In Acts chapter 2, 14 through 16, it reads like this. It says, but Peter standing up with, this is after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has just shown up, and all of the thousands of people in the area are basically saying, these guys are hammered. They're drunk. I don't want to listen to these people. What is going on here? This is crazy. So Peter stands up and he says this. Peter standing up with the 11 raised his voice to them and said, men of Judea, excuse me, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk. As you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But listen to this. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So here we are at Pentecost, the day charismatics put almost equal to Easter, right? It's the day we got the real thing. We got the Holy Spirit. Woohoo! We're there. The Holy Spirit is manifesting. There are things going on. And, Paul, and Peter's about to, about to witness to these people. And the very first thing he does is he recalls something that was spoken by God's prophet many hundreds of years before. And he's able to take that and bring it forward because he is so knowledgeable about God's word. He can recognize a move of the Spirit now and understand how it was spoken about before. That was the power of Peter. It had nothing to do with him or with the Holy Spirit in him. It had everything to do with the fact that he had prepared himself for the work that God had set before him. So when he saw this going on, he said, no, this is the prophet. This is the prophet Joel. He's speaking to people who knew the language. They knew the prophecies. They knew the church. They knew Judaism. They understood what was going on. They knew the Messiah was going to be coming. They knew all of this stuff. So Peter didn't have to go back to the beginning to explain everything for him. He didn't have to say, men who should know these things. This is, okay, let's go all the way back to Genesis. He didn't have to do what Paul did. All he had to do was say, hey, this is the prophet Joel. And everyone that was there knew exactly what he meant. They understood it. And now all of a sudden, pay attention to this. The missing pieces of their understanding, Paul, uh, Peter, uh, Peter was able to give them because he had them. Peter was able to fill in the gaps of their understanding when it comes to the Messiah because Peter understood it. And he could fill in the gaps of even those who know. How many times have you run into people in the church who have been in the church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and they know nothing? Nothing. When you sit down and you ask them, Grandma, Grandpa, can you explain to me the gospel? Say, uh, 
well, there's Jesus. I've had these conversations, folks. What, they, what people end up doing is they end up learning about their denomination. They end up learning what it means to be a good charismatic, what it means to follow the Holy Spirit, what it means to be a good Baptist, what it means to be a Catholic, what it means to be a Methodist. These are tricks. These are religious tricks. Jesus, I got news for you, Jesus wasn't Baptist, Jesus wasn't Catholic, Jesus wasn't charismatic, Jesus wasn't Pentecostal, Jesus wasn't Methodist. Jesus was Jesus. All these denominations and the way that we worship, they're styles. It's no difference between a Mexican restaurant and an Italian restaurant. It's all food, it's just flavored a little different. And hopefully it's all edible. I've been in some restaurants where it's not edible, and I've been in some churches where it's not edible either. We're supposed to do this. Both Peter and Paul were able to be used by God as mighty instruments of change uh, on the earth and, in, and the, between the Jews and the Gentiles because they had committed themselves to something that is not spoken about a lot in the, in the global church today. Knowing and understanding the word of God. Knowing and understanding the word of God. They had a knowledge second to none. That's why God was able to use them. Now, here's an interesting thing. Sometimes when I, I'll, 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 I'll speak with people about what God is calling them to do, and they'll say, Pastor, I think God is, is calling me to do this, but I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. This, it's, it's very nerve-wracking. I don't know if I can go there. I just, I just can't understand it. And almost always what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring them back to a place in Scripture where God has done something similar in the life of somebody else. And here's what almost always happens. They're like, God has done this before. He can do it again. Yes. You see, I didn't give them strength. I didn't give them confidence. I didn't give them surety. What I gave them was an understanding of God's word. And the understanding of God's word gave them the confidence they need to step out into the role that God has prepared for them. All I got to do is bring them the map. I can't bring somebody con- I can't give somebody confidence in the in, in the Holy Spirit, but God's word can. Peter was able to look at the crowd and say, "No, I'm sorry, this is the prophet Joel because Peter was confident that he understood God's word in relationship to what was going on. Our lives are the same way. The common thread is always the word of God. All throughout both Peter and Paul's writings, they did one thing more than anything else. If you read through the New Testament, they did one thing more than anything else. They defended the integrity and the importance of the scriptures and the authority. That was the bulk of their ministry. They would go around and they would correct churches that were going off the rails and trying to incorporate what today we would call new age or spiritualist or agnostic ideas into the church and corrupting the scriptures. They always went back to the integrity of God's word. They taught on a wide range of topics, but it was always about the uh, brought back to the authority of God's word and God's promises. Now, this is very important for us today because there is a growing movement within the church. And I'm talking about the Christian church. There is a growing movement in the church. And uh, I'll, even, I'll even pin it down a little bit more in the charismatic church. This has been growing a lot over the last few years. And I find it very disturbing. And the, the trend is, oh, is away from the authority of God's word. You, pe- you see people standing in the pulpit telling people that they don't need to follow the Bible that they don't need to follow the Ten Commandments, that it's more important to have the Spirit in your life than it is to have a knowledge of the Word of God. 
which sounds so good. But there's one thing that I can, plain, I can tell you plainly. Those are lies. Those are lies. They're meant to take you away from the thing that you should be pursuing. When you hear someone like that, the best thing, the best advice I can give you is turn them off. And it doesn't matter if they're your friend. Turn them off because they don't know what they're talking about. And what they're saying is dangerous. I want to show you something. here. I got a little short little video clip here for you of two very prominent teachers who are basically leading this movement. One of them is Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Community Church. He's Charles Stanley's son. Andy Stanley teaches very plainly that the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible is a collection of stories about God. And the other one is Bill Johnson from Bethel Church, Redding, California. Very prominent speaker. His basic teaching point is that the Holy Spirit in you is always more important than, the, than, than God on the page. The, holy, the voice within trumps the word on the page. That's his basic stance. And I want you to hear it from their mouth. So here's the video. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. Hear me say it. Here's what the Jerusalem Council was saying to the Gentiles. You are not accountable to the Ten Commandments. You're not accountable to the Jewish law. We're done with that. God has done something new. So as soon as you pull out one piece of the Bible to say, this is a myth, well, then immediately it's like, well, what else in there is myth? Mm -hmm. The foundation of our faith is not the Scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. It's theologically immoral to allow an Old Testament revelation of God's nature usurp and surpass the clear manifestation of the Father's nature as found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's difficult to expect the same fruit of the early church when we value a book they didn't have more than the Holy Spirit they did have. <clears throat> it's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. You hear the people clapping? You know why they're clapping? Because I don't have to abide by the teachings of the Bible anymore. I don't have to listen to that 2,000-year-old writing. I don't have to put myself in the position where this becomes an authority in my life. I can accept anyone doing anything because grace, 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 grace. You know, grace without repentance is cheap grace, and it has no value. Now imagine something. Someone's standing in front of you, and they slap you in the face as hard as they possibly can. And they say, Grace! And you say, Okay, Grace, I'm not going to hit you back. They say, Oh, awesome. So they slap you again. Grace! You see, grace without repentance has no value. Grace without repentance is about the same as getting caught doing something and then immediately going, Sorry, 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 sorry! Repentance means to recognize your sin, turn and walk the other direction. And you do so because you've been given the grace to move that way without penalty. That's what grace is. I recognize the issue in my life and now I get to turn and walk in this way without the penalty of the action that I've just committed. That's grace with repentance. That's real grace. Now this is not a new thing and there's some very disturbing stuff. That first clip with Bill Johnson when he says it's theologically immoral... To let an Old Testament revelation of the character of God usurp and surpass 
the manifestation of God in Jesus? Let me ask you a quick question. Is it possible? Is it possible for God and Jesus in the Bible to represent two different things? Of course it isn't. The very premise of the argument is idiotic. The idea that Jesus can be different from God is nonsense. So if you're ever reading your Bible and you see something in the life of Jesus that you think contradicts something in the, in the character of God in the Old Testament, you're wrong on one side of that equation. You're seeing something wrong. Your, your understanding is, is backwards. Because the Bible does not contradict itself anywhere. I've had people bring me stuff. This is a contradiction. Okay, let's sit down. You explain to them what, it, what they're actually reading. They're like, okay, it's not. Because it doesn't. God's word is uniform all the way through. If we would just learn to understand it, we could see that. Now, one of the other teachings that Andy Stanley does, um, he actually says this. He says, if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And what he is saying in this is that if we, think about this, please. I read that statement, I think, yeah, of course. He's putting it out there like this. If we really call the Bible the foundation of our faith, we've got to do what it says. And that's just not possible. That's his teaching. You can't just go around telling people that the Bible's true. What? What do you want to read them? Archie Comets out of, out of the bazooka gum? Because it's about as useful. What do we think we're doing? If we're not bringing them the word of God, we're bringing the word of men. You know what the word of men does? It gets us in trouble. A lot. The word of men has no value. It's the word of God that saves. Andy Stanley believes that creation is a myth, the flood is a myth, the Tower of Babel is a myth, and the bulk of the the miraculous encounters through the Old Testament never actually happened. They were made up to give the Jews credibility. You see, they didn't want to put themselves out there to other religions because they wanted their God to be strong. So they just made up these stories. Who wants to serve a God that lies? Who wants to serve a God that's so weak he's just got to make stuff up? No one wants to serve that God. Which is why I believe every word, every word in context there's a, a preacher online who's got a coffee mug. Please don't go out and buy me this coffee mug because I'll end up with 30 of them. It says, I can do all things through a verse out of context. And he's absolutely right. So this idea is becoming more and more common within the church. And it's honestly, it's scaring me. What ends up happening is these people promoting this ideology are doing so so that they can, the idea is that they can be more welcoming, more embracing, more tolerant. That's a great word for today, right? We've got to be tolerant. As I mentioned to you last week, God is not tolerant. God is very intolerant. Christianity is very intolerant because we have the audacity to say there's only one way to heaven and only one way to be forgiven. One. All roads don't lead to to heaven. There's one road, road, the name of that road is Jesus, and that's it. There's no other way. To say anything else is to lie and give people false hope. And I don't want to have anything to do with that. If you examine the Bible's end times prophecies, I'm going to close with, with, with this. 
I say that, and, you know, 20 minutes later. I'll close. In conclusion, to wrap up, now ending, um, however you want to say it. I heard it said once from the pulpit, you know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But if you examine the Bible's end times prophetic warnings, everyone loves to talk about end times. If you examine the Bible's end time prophetic warnings, the bulk of them talk about the same thing. The bulk of them talk about the failure of the church. We love to think that, oh, the world's going to get it. God's coming and he's coming. You know why he's coming? Because of the failure of the church. The bulk of them are talking about the, the failure of the church. And it's always the same thing. And I want you to hear this. I'm going to give you a couple of examples and then we're going to close. The church begins to follow false teaching. And the false teaching is always the same. The false teaching is a replacement for God's word. Let me show you this. Most people are familiar with this verse right here in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Now, I have heard charismatic preachers take this and, and basically say things like, you know, this is why people adhere themselves to the, to, so much to Scripture, because they won't, they won't listen to sound doctrine that wants to be inclusive and tolerant and welcoming to all. They twist it. Because they take that one verse out of context. And what I always recommend to people, anyone that's been in the first principles class with me knows that I have a basic viewpoint. Ten above, ten below. Don't just read that scripture. Read above and below. It makes a difference. Now listen to this. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Watch how this changes. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at, the, uh, at his appearing and, it, uh, and his kingdom. Listen to these three words. Preach the word. I charge you before God who will judge you and everything else. Preach the word. The the there is very, very important because it means there's no other. The word. Now, they knew what the word was. It was the scriptures. It's always been the scriptures throughout history for the, for the Jews and for the, for, uh, for the Gentile converts. It's always been the same thing. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, listen, convince, rebuke. Who do you rebuke? Can you rebuke someone who doesn't know? No. You can only rebuke those who should know better. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will hape up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here's a couple of quick questions. When the time comes, who are they? In verse 3. The time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. Who are they? It's the church. It's, it's not looking good for us right now. What is the sound doctrine and the truth? The word of God. 
Preach the word because a time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. So the word of God is what? It is both sound doctrine and truth, which means anything else is false doctrine and lies. This becomes very important to understand. We are constantly warned that towards the end of days, it will be the Christians that reject the message of God. They will reject the value of the word of God. They will reject the teachings of the word of God. And they will reject the authority of the word of God because they want what they want when they want it. I want to be able to embrace whatever I want. I want to be able to sleep with whoever I want. We're consenting adults. If I want to get married 19,000 times, I should be able to. We want what we want. It's not about what we want. Today, we are seeing this happen before our very eyes. And here's the problem. I want to say this with as much humility as I can while at the same time being very direct. Anyone who's been here a length of time, you know that this is a core part of my life. The problem with the church today is rampant biblical illiteracy. We got people in the church who have Bibles, they have memory verses, cross-stitched on pillows, that they have no idea what they mean. They have good intentions. They love the idea of missions as long as they can fund a missionary that's going to go for them because they're not going. They love the idea of people sharing their faith or more to the point, listening to somebody else share their faith. We love watching Christian music or watching Christian movies and listening to Christian music. But we still don't know what the word of God says. And so when it comes right down to it, when God calls us to become a light to someone who is lost, Our light is very dim. Our light is very dim because we don't know what we should know. We should know this stuff. If you've been in the church longer than five years, you should know this stuff. There's no excuse for us to have the answer to all of the mysteries of life, to have the cure for all illnesses, for for all heartaches, have the cure for, for everything that ails the world and share it with nobody because we chose to take the pill and not understand how it was made. We should never be in this position. We've got preachers in the pulpit today that are denying the divinity of Christ. They're saying that Jesus was simply a man in right standing with God. He wasn't God. By the way, that's Bill Johnson, Todd White, Cheon, a bunch of others. You've got people that are denying the centrality of the cross, saying that salvation was just a side issue so that Jesus could get us the Holy Spirit so that we could operate in power and might. By the way, that's in Bill Johnson's book, When Heaven Invades Earth, page 77, if anyone's looking for it. Now check this out, 2 Peter 3, 14, 14 through 18, and then I promise we're done. It says, therefore, beloved, look, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider, now listen to this, consider that the long suffering of our Lord's salvation, 
as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Let me explain to you what that means here in a second. He says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Listen to this last sentence. Which untaught, unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. This is Peter telling the rest of the church, Paul's writings are the word of God. Don't deny it. Don't doubt it. And the people who are telling you not to deal with this because Paul can be hard to understand because he was. Keep in mind, this is a time where basically no one was educated and most people were illiterate. This is very hard to understand sometimes even for us today. But Peter is saying that this is the word of God. Don't doubt it. Live by it. And if someone is doubting this publicly from a platform or a pulpit, they are twisting the scripture. They are untaught. They are unstable, have nothing to do with them. The idea that the church would walk away from the authority of the scripture as the foundation of our faith. I, I don't even know how to relate to that. It's so far beyond frightening that people would be willing to do this. And they think they're being godly. You can't lead someone to a place you don't understand. I said this, I I covered this in a lot more detail in last week's podcast. If you haven't looked at it, check it out. Um, But one of the things that I said in the podcast that I I, I warned people at that point in time, this is going to sound very, very harsh because it is, okay? And basically what I said is this, if you value what you think is the voice of the spirit within over the voice of God on the page, the truth of the matter it is, you don't love God, you love yourself. Because you have placed whatever you think is right above what God has already told us is right. So the truth of the matter is, you may love Jesus, but you love yourself a lot more. Humility is something we need to be seeking. This is very important. It's very dangerous. If you're going to give people your opinion about God, my best, my best advice for you is don't share your faith. If you're going to share your faith, share your faith. Book, chapter, and verse, please. If you can put your experience into book, chapter, and verse, that's even better. But if you're going to do one or the other, it's book, chapter, and verse because nothing else really matters. I can't help you. I can't save you. I can't change you. I can't fix you but I can direct you to the part of the word of God that can. Anything else is useless. I love the word of God. It's the focus of my life. It's what I spend my entire week digging into. And to see people label it as old, dusty, and not worth their time, it honestly has made me cry sitting in my office. It's painful. But it's still the world we live in. So let's recognize it, understand it, Learn how to fight it and move forward in the best way we know how. Make sense? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what you're doing in this place. I want to thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, I thank you that you gave us your word. You gave us your word. You've been giving us an understanding of you for thousands of years so that we would have nothing missing, as Paul wrote to Timothy, so that we would be complete 
that our understanding would be fulfilled. We would be prepared for all things that you ask us to do. Father, help us to walk in the surety of your word, never doubting you. And help us to know and need to commit ourselves to its understanding. Not as trivia, but let us bring it into our heart, Lord, so that we can become better tools for you. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen.